A um, couple of things. My name's David. I'm the pastor, if I didn't say that already. Um, we're glad you guys are with us, however you're doing this. If you're online and you are not in uh, the sort of active group with Amber and Nick, I'd encourage you to do so. We're going to have some interactive stuff going on today, and um, it'll help you not just stare at an empty screen for a few minutes. Um, so I do have one more announcement. So I want one more announcement I want to make uh, for you guys is uh, we just started what in the church is known as the Lent season, the Lenten season. That's the uh, 40 days plus Sundays. There's more to that uh, leading up to Easter. Um, I'm not going to talk a ton about Lent. We did videos. Um, I thought everybody did a really good job, especially the adult person. Um, but uh, Maggie did one for your uh, elementary, Lizzie did one for middle and high school, and I did one for adults around Lent. You can grab those on our YouTube. Uh, they were available in our newsletter last week. If you're looking for those links and you're online, you can ask Nick and Amber, and I'll bet they'll find them for you. Um, so not a ton of time on that, just to know that Lent is that time uh, where we prepare our hearts and minds uh, to celebrate Easter. It's kind of good to have runways towards important events, or they will pass you by very quickly. Uh, one of the things we do in Lent to prepare ourselves is is fasting and prayer. Um, and just to be clear, fasting is not not eating. I was a wrestler. I was really good at not eating, not so good at fasting. Fasting is is replacing something, consumption, with something that we generally do too much of or more than we need with something that we generally do too little of, which is spending time with the Lord. And, and so that's the idea of fasting there. Um, and, and one thing that I would ask you to do if you consider yourself part of Highlands is, is to use some fasting time in this season to pray for us. Um, we found out this week that at the end of May, um, we will no longer be able to meet in this location. Um, and that's not a huge like deal for us. We were sort of in this place for a year trying to figure out, okay, is there, is this what we would like to do long-term? Is this where God's calling us? Um, but this building has been sold and the people that have bought it just have different plans for the building. They don't want to do assembly space. They want to do a bunch of office space. And so um, they let us know on Monday, they said, this, you don't fit with the plans we have as that transition. And so we're, we're in the market. Um, and uh, I uh, wanted to let you guys know that, wanted to let you know um, that I don't feel super anxious about that. Maybe I should feel more. I don't know. Um, part of me says God does his best work with nomadic people. Uh, part of me says um, I, I, I love the idea um, that who we are um, is, is more than the space that we're in. Um, and part of me believes that we haven't found our geographical place yet in the Marietta community. I don't really want to see what the Lord does with that. Um, what I would ask you guys to do is just is just pray and listen. And, and if you feel like the Lord is saying something, let me know. Reach out to me. Let me know. Um, we'll have a committee. We're working on that right now, um, made up of some of our leadership team and finance team that'll kind of organize thoughts going forward. And so you, if you have ideas about space, please let me know as well. And I'll, I'll funnel that um, through that committee. Um, and if you have any questions about that, also just, just reach out to me. Um, and, and ask, and I'm happy to share about those things. Um, so thank y'all for listening to that and, and, and praying, uh, for us during this season. All right. We're in the book of Genesis. 
uh, we, I said I was going to spend a week a chapter and I just, I lied to us. I lied to myself. Um, so we're only doing Genesis one through five. We, it would take us till the end of time to finish the entire book of Genesis in one sitting. Uh, but we have looked at Genesis one and Genesis two, and, and there's, there's a few values to, to reading a book like Genesis. Uh, one is that when you get back to the beginning and the source, uh, it undoes a lot of bad theology. And, and we have spent a lot of time um, over the past couple of weeks trying to untangle a, a lot of bad theology. Uh, the second thing it does is, is books about beginnings help answer a lot of the why and what for questions that we have in life. And so this week, we're actually going to spend a little bit of time on Genesis 2. Last week, we spent time on Genesis 2, I think, doing that first thing. Um, and if you didn't catch that, I would encourage you to go jump on YouTube and catch that, or you can get it um, on our podcast on iTunes if you want to listen to it. Um, it'll it'll do a lot of that for you. But we're actually going to look at Genesis 2 again. But we're going to focus more on this second thing, this, this why and what for part. Um, and it will hopefully... Being able to look at it from both angles will help us better understand the next two chapters, which is what we're setting up, up for. Um, I, I just so you know, if, if Highlands is new to you and or if you're catching us online for the first time, when, when we preach, we aren't trying primarily to make better Christians or, or make more Christians. Um, we, we believe what Jesus said was that he came to give life abundantly, the fullest life possible. And, and so that, that's what we want our focus to be uh, when we seek to understand the scriptures. So, so, so the question um, that I think Genesis 2 does a really good job of answering is this, how do we function best? How do we as people, God made us, and how do we function best? And that's what we're going to focus on um, in this look at Genesis 2. So I'm reading from Genesis 2. I'm just going to grab a few verses. Um, so if you have a Bible, if you want to open that to Genesis 2, if you want to pull that up on your phone, um, or it'll come up on this screen. And I think we finally solved the problem of people seeing the scripture without it being cut off at home and here. But we'll see how that goes. If not, you can pull it up. Genesis 2. Um, I'm starting with verse 2 and 3, and then I'm going to read verse 8 and 9, and then I'm going to jump to 15 through 18. So Genesis 2, 2 says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Then jump into verse eight, it says, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then jump into verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. <clears throat> so how do we function best? How do we best pursue? How were we made in such a way to best pursue abundant life? What I think Genesis 2 shows us personally 
is, is that the way we function best is that we would have a life of work and relationship that is supported by rest. That, that before sin entered the world, before any brokenness came into the world, that when God set things up ideally, that humanity's life was composed of work and relationship, and it was all on a foundation of rest. We are called to work, right? God worked. That's a, that, that, that's a radical statement to, to the people who are reading this for a few reasons. One is that in almost, ancient, almost every ancient origin story, in fact, every ancient origin story that I know of other than the Bible, work is bad. Work is what you want to get out of. The gods work in the beginning, but then they give work to humanity because they don't want to do it themselves. Right? And and in a lot of origin stories, work is a result of evil. You guys are familiar with Pandora's box, right? Pandora's box is the Greek story of, of how kind of every bad thing came into the world. Well, work was one of those bad things. And and that's the world in a lot of ways that Genesis is written in and speaking to. Work is bad. You want to avoid work, really arriving is being able to give work to somebody else. And if you can't avoid work, you should do the least amount and the least menial work that there is to do. You should not especially get your hands dirty. But but Genesis 2 just, just steps right into that and says, God works. God works and God's image works. God works as an artist. God works as a strategist. God works as a manager and a planner. And God works as a landscaper, right? God gets in the dirt. This is an incredibly profound thing to say to this world that God would work in the dirt. And again, we talked about this last week, that there's imagery and parable here. And so you, you can overreach this, but, but that's part of what is being communicated, that God would get in the dirt, that God would get God's hands dirty. Because God gets in the dirt, it's good. Because God gardens, it's good. And God makes us gardeners. Tim Keller, you guys know, I like Tim Keller. He talks about this. And, and one of the things that he points out is he says, only the only belief system that has, has high a work, I mean, high, high a view of work as the Bible, the only belief system kind of across culture is Marxism, right? That Marx had this really, stick with me, okay. Marxism had this really high view of work. And what Keller says is, but Marxism ultimately fails because its view, its high view of workers can't be grounded in a God who loves to work. Is that you can't really value a menial worker unless it's really rooted in this idea that, that the most high is a worker that the Most High gets his hands dirty. Work is something God does, and hear this, God gifted us to do when the world was perfect. 
What that means is that at the end of time, when the world is perfect again, we'll work. We'll do work. And, and the reason I think this is important to us is, is that if we think work is a part of the curse, then we're only going to work in order to not work, right? And that's what a lot of us do. Our, our greatest goal is to work in order to not work. We're saving and we're scrimping and we're, we're looking for retirement so we can go sit on a beach somewhere. And I, I, I hate to let you down. But, but to say that if, if, if work is a curse and you work in order to not work, that ultimately your life is going to be disoriented and it's not going to be enough. Because we function best as people who work, but it's not just any work. There, there is a work that allows working to be a means and an end and not just a means to get out of working. But, but that working really has to satisfy at least three criteria. The first thing it has to do is it has to satisfy the right why. Work that is life-giving, work that leads to abundant life has to satisfy the right why. Now listen, it can be any work if it satisfies the right why. It has to have a sense of mission. There's an author, Simon Sinek, who has this book, and the book is called Start With Why. And, and essentially what Sinek says is he says, knowing our why, knowing why we do what we do, enhances our ability to, to be fruitful. When we have a clear sense of why, Sinek says, we're better able to steer our lives towards our purpose. We're better able to see that our work will accomplish something of fruit. You become the kind of person willing to sacrifice, willing to suffer, willing to grind it out for what you do, if you have the right why. And I'm going to go and tell you guys, I only know this in theory, but I've heard it from people who know it in practice. Money is not enough because there's never enough money and I've never yet to find the person who decided they had too much money, right? It's, it's not enough of a why. It might be a, a piece of the why, but it can't be the final why and working to not work is not enough of a why. You're, we're, we're just not wired that way. At our church at Highlands, our why, if, if you don't know this, our why for being is not to have church on Sundays. Our why for being is to be a city on a hill in our community. Our why is to look at our community and say the, the community's understanding of God and the church is, is, is skewed and, and distorted. And, and we want to be in our community as something different, as, as, as something not just different, but something that is, that's, that's above, not above people, but above the, the common ways of understanding, above the ditches that people fall into. And so, so we do these things like, like service is service. We, we, we go outside and, and we give our Sunday to that because we think that it's important for our community to see a church 
that does more than just sit in a room every week. And, and we do these, these weird prayer interactive services because we think it's important for our community to see Christians in community and in relationship with each other. And when I see Nathan Martin look over at Kendall and say, what does this song do next? And Kendall says, this is what this song does next. I say, city on a hill. I say, family of God. I say, more than performance, right? I, I do. Like, I, I, I say, that's what we want and want to not edit out. We have a why. And it makes us do things that look stupid. And it makes us do things that maybe look like they go against our better interests, but we know our why. And it sorts out what we do. And the reason I bring that up, one, is because I love our why. But, but two is that I want you to know that that's what the right why will do for your work, is it'll sort it out. And if you're like, well, I don't know my why, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you our general why as people made in the image of God. And it's this. It's to do what God did at the beginning, not to bring something out of nothing, because that's the why of God. Only God can bring something out of nothing. But you remember what God did after God brought something out of nothing is that God brought order out of chaos. God brought newness out of the undeveloped. And I'm going to tell you, whatever you do, that's what you're supposed to do. And that can happen anywhere. Order out of chaos. And you know it. You know those moments when you've brought order out of chaos in your home, in your workplace, in relationships. And, and there has been something in you that has said, yes. Some of you are incredibly strategic. And somebody comes to you with a problem. You're able to say, this is what we do to fix this. And, 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 and you're able, your heart says, yes. Some of you do that with food. Some of you do that with hair, right? My wife went to the hairstylist and it's not that it was chaotic before Jane, but order out of chaos, right? It's what we do in school. You guys that are in school, you have all this disparate information, right? And you're like, what do we do with this? We're going to order it. And we're going to put it into place. And, and, and if there's, there's something that happens when you bring order out of chaos. And so whatever you do, Embrace that why and do work that embraces that why in some way. And I'm going to tell you, if it doesn't, you, you won't feel the abundance of the joy of work. Second thing, second th criteria it has to satisfy is you actually need to be good at it. You should actually be good at it, right? I, oh man, you, you guys, I knew when I, when I first became a Christian that I was going to be a worship leader. The only problem was I was not very good at it, right? And, and so ultimately, I would always be let down. I would always be struggling. I would always be embarrassed. And I had to learn that, that the work that I was made to do was going to be something where I could bear fruit. It had to be something where I could bear good fruit. Jesus says that is in keeping with God's pleasure. God wants you to bear good fruit. We are all made craftsmen and creators, craftspersons and creators. But it takes, very, but it takes various forms. And, and the cool thing about Genesis is that it just sort of covers all of these bases, artist, singer, laborer, again, like I said, strategist, management, rearing people, right? You want to bring order out of chaos, 
raise some kids. God does all of that work and all of it has value. But you, but you got it, but you got to put yourself to something that you can bear fruit at. And then the third thing is this, it needs to take care of creation. We don't just look at what brings us joy or what, what look at what brings us mission is that the first people, and it continues on to us, took care of living things and nature. In, in our work, if it's going to be fulfilling, there has to be an element of taking care. We don't just work for ourselves. We work to care for the world that we're in. Don't only do work that fulfills you. Do work that helps other people. That's that word in the church they use so many times, stewardship. And most of the time you hear it and it's like, give money. And that's great. Give money. But, but really, that's the secondary way that we care. And all of us need more than that. All of us need to embrace that in our work, we can take care. A couple of Highland specific notes here. First is there is an environmental stewardship in this that cannot be ignored. I've told you guys about Sandy Richter. Dr. Richter wrote this book, Epic of Eden, that I leaned on heavily for a lot of these five chapters. She has another book called Jane, what's it called? Stewards of Eden? But it's all about environmental care. It's all about environmental care. Humanity is made to serve and care for the ground, right? In Genesis 1, it talks about mastering, but in, but in Genesis 2, it talks about serving. And that both of those things work. Humanity is both, in some ways, the master over creation, right? And also the servant of creation. Humanity and creation stand in this weird relationship. We're, we're made from the same matter as the rest of the world. Even the words in Genesis 2 talk about this, right? Adam, which is human, and the ground, which is Adama. The Adam is made from the Adama to serve the Adama. So what? Well, well one thing I would say specifically to us in our community, is that there's something about sort of environmental stewardship that, that for some reason the Christianity I was raised in, the sort of industrialized conservative American Christianity, has decided that, that taking care of the environment is the purview of godless liberalism, right? What they would call that. For, for some reason, that really is completely disconnected from our roots of Christianity. And when we do that, this is a city on a hill moment, by the way. And when we do that, we alienate the hearts and minds of people who love the Lord and know better and know that they were made to care for creation. And we eliminate people. And that's a worldly view of, of our faith. And we need to step away from that. We, we need to, again, be a city on a hill and say, we can love the earth without worshiping it. We can care for the earth without making it our complete end game. Second thing I'm going to say is this about work. Is that the Bible doesn't believe there's one single answer to poverty. 
The Old Testament and the New Testament establish clear principles of community care for the impoverished. I mean, and they are serious. And they are generous. I don't have time to go into all of them. But at the same time, we believe abundant life ultimately involves work. As a city on a hill, we got to take a holistic view of people in need. We have to decide, yeah, we want to feed, clothe, and make sure that there is shelter for the impoverished in our community. We've got these care packs up here, by the way. If you want to take some of them, I think that's what's up here. Um, for people, if you run into people in our community who have needs and there's, there's a bunch of stuff in there, you can grab a couple and just keep them in your car. I give them out all the time. And, and we believe in that. We believe in immediate care. But we also believe in changing and building systems that will open more doors for more people to embrace the blessing of work. Our culture, for some reason, makes those values opposed to each other, right? We're either going to care for people right now or we're going to believe in the long-term value of, of most people who can working. And the reason we do that is because it's easier to blame people or it's easier to throw money at problems, honestly. The third way, the way it looks at impoverished community holistically is, is, is costly. It is difficult. And Jane and I were talking about this last night. When I try to think about it as one person, it's honestly impossible. When I try to think about Highlands addressing it, it's honestly impossible. And it's so impossible that, that really all I can handle is feeling a little guilty about it and then moving on to lunch. But that cannot be what the church is known for. So what do we do about that? We'll talk about that in a minute. This is break one, all right? You're gonna get a couple of breaks today to talk. And here's what happens here, if you haven't done this before, is that the people you're with are the people that you feel comfortable enough to talk to and don't think you're gonna get sick, however that works, in the online community. You're gonna ask each other and answer these questions. They're going to come up on the screen. Emma, go ahead and bring it up on the screen here, the first question. And then you can hit the two, I think, on that uh, online, three online, whatever it hits. All right. So here's the question I want you to ask. Is the work I'm doing currently contributing to an abundant life? If so, why? If not, what needs to change? So we kind of left off with this question, this idea that, that we're made for work, but, but really the great work we're going to do is beyond what an individual or even, even a single church can, can really handle. And, and that gets us into the second thing that, that we're made for, is that we're not just workers, right? God didn't just make us as workers, but, but we were made by a relational God for relationships. And, and we, we touched on some of this next week. So most of this is just going to, or some of this last week. And so most of this is just going to be a quick review. But, but we were made by a relational God. When you talk about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the understanding is that there's some sort of dependent interaction that, that's going to happen between God and humanity because God desires relationship with humanity. We are made to stay connected. We're made to stay in regular interaction with the holy, with God, with the eternal one, right? So, so God places these things in the garden 
And one of them, he says, and, and don't eat that because that's part of relationship. Part of relationship is, is trust. Part of relationship is saying, I'm going to voluntarily honor you. And God says, distinguishing between good and bad is an insight that belongs to me. And we talked, again, we talked exclusively, or we talked extensively, rather, about this last week. And, but, but that's what God is saying. And so God's saying, come to me, engage me uh, around these issues. To eliminate the tree is to eliminate the relationship. But we were made by a relational God to also image that and, and to have healthy relationships with other people. And, and again, we talked about this a lot last week. I'd encourage you if, 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 if you weren't, or you, you didn't listen to last week specifically to go back and look at this, because uh, essentially this healthy relationship is about needing help to do what you were made to do. It's not about a lot of things that we seem to think it's about. That's one of those undoing of bad theologies. But, but God creates multiple humans because God says you, you can't do the things that you're called to do alone. And, and it's healthy relationship that honestly gets 2,000 water bottles to an elementary school in less than a week, isn't it, Sarah? It's, it's, it's people across time or, and across spaces doing that. It's healthy relationship that allowed one family in our church to bring so many clothes to the Christmas Eve service for Lockheed Elementary's clothes closet that we still have clothes that they were like, that's just too many. We can't take them. They'll have to go somewhere else. And it's healthy relationships that allows a church that's only been open for two months and really was open for two weeks before we had to shut our doors to plant two food banks in the community. It's, it's healthy relationships. And, and I'm going to tell you guys, it is healthy relationships that will allow us to tackle whatever's next for us in our community. You need help. We need help to do what we were made to do. But that's also personal. You know, I have a friend um, who went through a really bad divorce. and started seeing someone else, and then it came to that time where everyone started to ask, are you going to get married again? And this friend who had been through all of the pains of divorce asked me, what, like, what, what's the point of getting married again? And, and I realized that all those sort of like romantic reasons that, that Jane and I decided to get married when we were in our 20s weren't going to matter to my friend because he had seen all of those things and been devastated still by the results. And I, and I remember wrestling and thinking and trying to think, well, well, what would I do? Why would I tell my friend that, that there's a value in getting married again? And I remember just looking at him and I don't know, even know that I've told you this, Jane, but take it for what it is. Is I said, you know, I think, I, th I think marriage and family is one of the, is, is one of the healthiest structures for making a good difference in the world. Is that it allows for some stability. It, it allows for some opportunity to affect things. And, and to really make a difference. And it is one way. It's not the only way. But, but it is one opportunity that you have to build a team to change the world. Right? We all need people. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying everybody has to get married, but I'm saying that, that we all need help 
if we're going to do good. And the kind of help we need has certain qualities. One is that it's equal. Is that it's equal. Is that, that people are equals. I'm not saying everybody does the same job, but what I'm saying is people have equal respect and admiration and honor for each other. It needs to pull towards the same goal. And it needs to be the kind of relationship where you can pass the image back and forth. Right? Where you're able to say, this is, remember, this is what our God looks like. This is what the one who loves us looks like at times. And the other person is able to say to you, hey, you're tired. Remember, this is what God looks like. Healthy relationships, abundant relationships, I would say, feature all of those qualities. And you're going to have relationships that don't have those qualities. We all do, right? And it's probably going to be a few or a handful of relationships that have those qualities, but you and I need them. So here's question number two. Here's break number two. If you didn't talk last time, you have to talk this time. Who's on my team? Bring it up, Emma. Who's on my team? Are my relationships life-giving or life-draining? Is there room for diverse opinion? All right. That's good. All right. So last thing. So we're made for work. We're made for relationships, but, but if these things are really going to produce abundant life, is they have to be built on a foundation of rest. And it's important to remember that it's a foundation. It's not that you have to run to rest after your work and your relationships wear you out, right? That's a different, that's a different version. That version exists in our world, but that's not what we're talking about. That it has to be on a foundation of rest. Because the kind of work that I'm talking about, the kind of relationships that I'm talking about, post-sin entering the world, this is utopia, right? And you know that. Some of you guys are already frustrated. Because e even the best jobs, which I have, and, and the best relationships, which I have, are frustrating. They're difficult. They're anxiety-inducing. I feel good about not knowing where we're going to be at the end of May, but not all the time, right? Ecclesiastes 2. One of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible is incredibly truthful about where we were before centered in the world, but it's also incredibly honest about where we are after sin enters the world. And if people, you know, what is it? The, you know, Christianity is the opiate of the masses. Whoever says that didn't read Ecclesiastes. Right, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17. Listen to this. It's in the Bible. So I hated life, been there, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to someone who comes after me, and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun, right? We had this conversation kind of today, didn't we, Nathan, in this past week, that happening. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person can labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who's not toiled for it. This too is meaningless, and it's a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving? for which they labor under the sun. 
All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. For, for us to move beyond that, for, for us to, to move to a place where our relationships and our work are experienced as abundant, even in broken humanity, we got to understand rest. Most of us are at a place where we know we need rest. Some of us haven't hit our walls yet, and we think that our energy is boundless, but, but it's not. Most of us know we need rest, but, but we struggle to find it because sleep is not the same thing as rest. Right? There, there's this thing, there's, there's, it, it, we need rest so bad that, that, that science has kind of developed the science of rest. I, I, I go to a counselor occasionally, and, and my counselor was, was telling me about this. Her background's in neurology, and she said, you need to understand the science of rest. Quick disclaimer, I said I would do this because Jane will tell all of you if I don't. I'm not good at resting. I'm not good at it, but I know that I need it. And so, so when I went to my counselor recently, she talked about this idea of the science of rest and, and that we tend to believe that the more we work and the less we rest, the more we will get done. But, but that actually there's, there's a limit to that belief. That there's a point at which if you rest more and work less, you'll actually be more productive, creative, and healthy and be able to get more done. There's an author, Alex Sujung Kim, who wrote a book called Rest that I'm just starting to read. So hold it, hang in with me. But, but, in, this, but in this book, Kim looks at the lives of scientists and, and writers and, and finds these people that are incredibly productive, but they only work four or five hours a day. Could you imagine? And, and Kim... What Kim noticed about these people is that when they're not working, a lot of their day is spent doing this thing called active rest, which means walking, playing, and engaging something else that relaxes their mind and their emotions. And that this allowed them to become healthier mentally, emotionally, and physically, and, and to actually go further in their fields, no matter what their field was, than anybody else. We need physical, mental, and emotional rest, and, and that's part of this. But what Genesis is getting at when Genesis talks about rest, what the Bible is getting at when the Bible talks about rest is actually something even deeper. It, it, it's a kind of rest that allows us to thrive in a world of fallen work and fallen relationships. And this is what the Bible calls God's rest. You first see it. We're not going to dig into these passages because we don't have time. But, but you first see it in Psalm 95 where it talks about if, if you hear God's voice. Psalm 95 is a psalm of worship. And at the end it says, listen, if you hear God's voice today, if you hear him right now, then do not neglect to enter into God's rest like your ancestors did. 
And then in Hebrews, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter three or four, I'd encourage you to go take a look at it this week. But Hebrews reiterates this and it says that God's rest is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. God saw that God's work was finished and rested. And Jesus said, God's work for you is finished and now come rest. This deep rest is saying, God sustains me. A lot of people work to prove their worth and their value and and find their security. In the film Chariots of Fire, super date if you're young, but I love it. In the film Chariots of Fire, it's about Olympic runners. and, and, And the Olympic athlete, the guy that portrays Harold Abrams, says this when he's thinking about an upcoming race. He says, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide. Listen to this, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? A lot of us work that way. I've got to justify my my existence. But will I? And and that kind of work will never give us rest. And then some of us, we, we don't look to our work, but we look to the important relationships in our life. My spouse, if everything's okay, then I can rest. My kids, if everything's okay, then I can rest. My friends, if they're all okay with me, then I can rest. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've played in my head again and again and again and the fear that has robbed me of sleep because I thought I let someone down or I said the wrong thing and I could find no rest. But working or relating to find rest for our souls is ultimately anxiety building. Because if I lose my work, if I lose my relationship, I've lost my rest. It's never abundant. But Hebrews 4 9 says we can enter God's rest because of Jesus. And we can rest from our work just as God rested from his. That's what Hebrews 4 9 says. We can rest from our work just as God rested from his. Think about that. God said it's good and set in his throne. We say Jesus is good and we rest in his mercy. Break number three, last break, and then we're going to bring it in for a landing. Sorry. What does active rest look like for me? And maybe even more important, skip that one. Ask this. Where am I tempted to replace the work of Jesus to find my value? Um, One thing for online people, we did it in here, and you guys probably missed it because the audio didn't work, is take some time to pray online. Uh, for people with work or relationship wounds. If you want to share them, that's fine. If you just want to say, I've got them and pray for me, that that's good when y'all are in discussion with each other. So how do we function best? How are we made to function best? We function best when we have work, when we have relationships, but when they're supported, when they're underwritten by knowing that in Jesus we have rest. So so this week, this is kind of the practical application for this is that I would encourage you to spend some time evaluating those three areas, work, relationships, and rest. Evaluate them. Spend my, my, my challenge to you, maybe Lent, you can incorporate this, would be 
just sometime this week, spend 45 minutes with God. Some of that sounds like an eternity. I understand, but you could do it. Go for a walk, whatever. Um, but spend 45 minutes with God looking at those three areas. Just asking God, God, what do you think about my work? What do you think about my relationships? And what do you think about how I rest? And then spend 45 minutes with someone who loves God and loves you. And ask them the same things or share with them the things that you feel like you're learning. That's it. I'm going to pray for us. Thank you guys for taking time to be with us today. God, God, I thank you that you didn't leave us to guess what abundant life looked like. God, I, I thank you that you made abundant life about connections. But you also made it about doing something. Because my heart desires both of those things. God, I confess. I believe in myself and my own abilities. I believe in the people around me and in their opinions far more than I believe in the work of Jesus. And, and I just pray that you would transform me by the renewing of my mind. And I, and I pray that you would do that for anybody else here who would say the same thing. In Jesus' name, amen.